0: Our reading is from Matthew, Matthew five through from seventeen through twenty. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law and all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven.
1: As we've just sung, may we see your holiness this morning. You are holy. Your word reveals to us just how Holy, holy, holy you are, abounding in righteousness, perfect. And as we look at this passage today, may we be so deeply moved at the core of who we are by your magnificent righteousness, given so freely to sinners. Yes, this fundamental reality of the kingdom of God, help us to hear it. Spirit, Spirit, we pray you speak to us, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last Sunday for Christmas Eve, we took a brief hiatus from the Gospel of Matthew, and in both the morning service and the candlelight service, we were in Exodus, of all places, and... uh, While we were in Exodus, we were considering the incredible gifts of God's grace that He was giving to Israel, gifts that were coming just before He gave to Israel the law. God was proving through those tremendous gifts of grace that He indeed did love Israel. He was pouring Himself out for Israel through these gifts, and these gifts of grace became the very foundations upon which the covenant between God and Israel was built. Grace first, and then the law. In response to God's love, to seeing His demonstrations of grace through a variety of different things, Israel was supposed to express itself by the law, by adherence to the law, by conformity to the law. For if, if the love of God were to fill your whole being, your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the natural expression would then be to love God, and it would be instinctive. It would be like breathing, be filling every corner. Love Him through obedience. Love Him through worship. And that is what was intended. God's love visible and received, and then an outward expression of God's love as would be manifested by the law. And and that was the intention. Again and again, the whole thing, the whole covenantal relationship founded on the loving kindness of Yahweh, His gifts, His salvation, His bread from heaven, His very presence. And in all of the wondrous graces of God, the natural expression would be worship and obedience. Am I sounding redundant? The Mosaic law given at Sinai is the, expression, is, is the expression of what it looks like to love God. You want to know what it looks like to love God? Look at the law. And I am being redundant intentionally because it has everything to do with our passage today. Before we get into that passage, let's just remember where we are in Matthew. We're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 5. This is the the greatest single teaching of Jesus that's been recorded. The Sermon on the Mount, the largest of the five discourses in Matthew. And we can think of the Sermon on the Mount as the beginner's guide to the kingdom of God. So Jesus is teaching his disciples what the kingdom of God looks like, how it functions, how we are supposed to operate within it, how the kingdom of God relates to the things that came before it, like the Mosaic Covenant. So if you want to know what the the kingdom of God is all about, then you want to go to the Sermon on the Mount and study that. What a blessing it is for us today to be learning about what it is to live in the kingdom of God. Now, it's called the Sermon on the Mount in part because Jesus goes up a mount to deliver it. We see this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Look at that. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, dot, dot, dot remember, Matthew's gospel is written to Jewish Christians. You know, we we say about the Bible that it's written for us, but it's not written to us. This gospel, Matthew, was written to Jewish Christians in the first century. And so when any Jewish reader saw this, what's going on right here, that Jesus went up the mountain, and then he begins to teach, and what he teaches, he starts with commands, commands that are in the form of blessings any first century jewish reader that would have seen that would immediately have been transported to mount sinai they would have been seeing with crystal clarity a parallel is being drawn moses and jesus mount sinai to this galilean height and that's exactly what matthew wants to do for his readers is trigger thoughts of the mosaic mind of the mosaic law in the minds of the readers because what's happening is that Jesus is delivering the law of the kingdom of God. And with this new law, something forever changes about the old law. So today I want to ask three questions or rather try to answer these three questions. One, what in what way did Christ fulfill the law? Two, what is the significance of the law for us today? And three, what is the type of righteousness needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh boy, if you, are in, if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know these three things. Now, this passage and these questions are going to take us into territory that can get complicated. I think a lot of people can make it a little too complicated and it becomes hard to understand and gets muddied and all kinds of things. But it's going to be my goal today To seek to answer these questions as simply as possible. Make them easy to understand. And so it's a goal. I very well may fail at this. And you can chastise me afterwards. But let us, together with our thinking, uh, with our focus, uh, let, let us focus ourselves so we can try to understand what this passage is about, that we might understand what I pray the Spirit speaks to us. So, look at verse 17 again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Amazing words. Law and the prophets, it's a simple way to refer to the Jewish scriptures. Everything that we would say today is in the Old Testament. Just a simple way is, is what Jesus means when he says the law and the prophets. So when Jesus says, do not think that they have come to abolish the law and the prophets, well, the very clear indication is that people were saying he has come to abolish the law and the prophets, right? People were accusing Jesus of doing that, and people would accuse Jesus' disciples of doing that very same thing. And I could take you to a number of places in the New Testament that show you that, but I want to take you to one particular place where the very first martyrdom happens in Christendom, the stoning of Stephen. Listen to this passage from Acts 6. Then the Jews secretly instigated men who said, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Moses meaning the law. You might even say scripture. And these people stirred up other people, and the elders and the scribes, And they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us, or the law. The accusation is that Jesus and Jesus' disciples were abolishing the law and the prophets. And so Stephen was executed for that. But the charges could only have come from false witnesses because Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, said in no uncertain terms, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So neither Jesus nor his disciples nor us today are looking to dismiss or minimize or set aside the Old Testament in any way. Now, such a statement begs a question. The statement, I've come to fulfill the law, begs the question, in what way has Christ fulfilled the law? The first thing to know is fulfill is not the same thing as keep. Jesus is not saying, I've come to keep the law. That's not what he means. He's not here about just doing all of the behaviors and rituals of the law. It's 613 commands. Now, indeed, Jesus did keep the law. He kept all 613 perfectly, but that's not his aim when he's, when he's speaking about these things in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think we come to a quick understanding of what he's getting at when we think about just the prophets. In what way has Jesus fulfilled the prophets? And we've seen it in Matthew now numerous times. Jesus fulfilling prophecy. We're going to see it many more times throughout Matthew. Jesus fulfilled the prophets because the prophets were pointing to him. The prophets were speaking about him. He is the one that was being prophesied. He's the fulfillment. So to understand how he's the fulfillment of the law, because they don't talk in the same way as the prophets, I need to do a little groundwork. Have you ever wondered what is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law, the Mosaic law, is to reveal righteousness. For instance, if someone is not able to meet the Ten Commandments, just ten, and and all of the implications that flow out of those Ten Commandments, then that person is not righteous, not able to meet the requirement of the law. If someone were to be able to meet all of the Ten Commandments, wow, they are righteous. They would be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what that rich young man said to Jesus when he came to him that one time. I've done all the Ten Commandments. What else do I need to do? That's a sidetrack, though. So, the Ten Commandments and the 603 other commandments, their purpose is to expose righteousness. And I I was thinking, think of it like a, a moral or spiritual x-ray machine. Right? You, you pass a person under the lens of the law, and then suddenly that person's heart and soul is exposed, and it reveals, the law reveals, if there's any righteousness in that person. Or if there is not. It penetrates to the very essence of a person's being, to see righteousness that exists there. So the law doesn't make a person righteous. You can't Like, you can't heal yourself with an x-ray machine. The law doesn't make a person righteous. It only reveals if a person is already righteous. And there are two massive realities that the law reveals. And one is that God is holy and perfectly righteous. Apart from the law, God is righteous. And the second thing that the law reveals is that man is not righteous. No one no one can meet the requirements of the law, and thus we are unholy, as we read in Romans 3:12, and this is quoted this is a quotation from the Old Testament. "As it is written, Paul writes, "None is righteous. No, not one, no one understands. No one seeks for God. all, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one." You know, we look at people and we think that that person is so good. And I know they're not a follower of Jesus. Clearly, they have righteous acts. But in the prophets, in Isaiah, we read that even the righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God because they are polluted by our sinful nature. So, not even one person can do even one righteous deed according to the law. so when the lens of the law is passed over you what it reveals in you as with everyone else unrighteous and in your unrighteousness you are therefore unworthy of the kingdom of god as romans 323 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and yet there was there was one there was one who passed passes under the lens of the law, and is righteous. He passed the test. The law exposes his heart, it exposes his soul, and what we see, the machine spits out, righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, And Jesus did not become righteous because he met the requirements of the law, because he was fastidious in following 613 commandments. No, what the law reveals is that Jesus already was righteous. He was righteous apart from the law, before the law. In spite of the law, Jesus is righteous, his righteousness. He is righteousness embodied. His whole being overflowing with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He is genuine, authentic righteousness. And the law proves it, exposes it, helps us to see it. So how is Jesus a fulfillment of the law? Because Jesus is the only one who stood the test of the law and was declared righteous. He is the embodiment of righteousness. Listen to how Paul makes the same assertion. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I think he's referencing what Jesus is saying right here in the Sermon on the Mount. The law and the prophets were bearing witness to the one that would come, the righteous one, that we heard about from Psalm 118 in our Sunday school class this morning. Jesus is that righteous one. And so Paul is referring to the righteousness of God as revealed in Jesus, a righteousness apart from the law, a law which has nothing to do to give us eyes to see Jesus' righteousness. Listen to now how the apostle John talks about that same sort of concept. He puts it a little differently. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For his fullness, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus and through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the substance to which the law had pointed. Christ is the fulfillment and from him flows grace and truth. Yes, I am trying to be repetitive. And now in the strongest terms possible, Jesus affirms the significance of the scriptures for that time, for this time, for all time, with a particular focus on the law. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, uh, A dot would be like the smallest mark on the smallest letter. Jesus is essentially saying, even the seemingly most insignificant part of the law is eternally significant. It is not insignificant. It has eternal significance. It therefore cannot be forgotten nor abolished. And you could read verse 18, as I have just read it, and you could think that the law is only going to be significant until heaven and earth pass away. And look, Jesus is teaching that the earth will be destroyed, that heaven and earth will pass away, but that's a misunderstanding what Jesus is teaching. In fact, I think that's a rather surface-level reading. The phrase, until heaven and earth pass away, is, it's like a Jewish idiom. It's like saying, until, not until hell freezes over. Like, it's not going to happen. Jesus is really saying that the law is as permanent as the created order. Both will endure on into eternity. In fact, the law may even be more permanent because the created order is based upon the law. And it's all punctuated by the phrase, until all is accomplished. So not heaven and earth, not the law. They will not pass away until all has been accomplished. It's that idiom. When all is accomplished, doesn't that mean that it's paradise? Doesn't that mean that it's perfection, that God's plan has been fully consummated, fully revealed, completed? Right? So it's perfection. Why then would earth, heaven and earth, be destroyed if we're in perfection? It it doesn't make sense at all. So he's not teaching that heaven and earth will pass away. Rather, They will never pass away. And in the same way, the law will never diminish in significance, but will go on into eternity, existent as a reality, existent in significance. Now, again and again, we need to understand this in light of the fulfillment of Christ as the fulfillment. Jesus, the fulfillment of Scripture, he is the living word. So, how can the written word be discarded if it points to the living word. Even the smallest minutiae of Scripture is the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we discard the revelation of Jesus Christ, how can we see Jesus Christ? We must never lay it aside, nor diminish it, the law and the prophets. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great, In the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus here has not suddenly shifted gears and talks about how we need to obey the law down to the smallest detail. Behavior is not in Jesus' focus here, though there are implications for behavior. Rather, the focus of verse 19 is teaching. No one should relax or diminish aspects of the law, meaning, don't tell people that the Old Testament doesn't matter. Don't tell people that even the smallest parts of the law are irrelevant. Do not be like Andy Stanley, who has taught the church to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And you might say to yourself, well, the ceremonial laws no longer apply to us. right? Haven't they been abolished? I don't need to animal sacrifices. I don't need to do all of these ceremonial hand washings so I can come to church and sing songs. So don't we set them aside? Aren't they pretty much irrelevant? No. For instance, every ceremonial law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. All the mosaic washings are completed when you are forever cleansed by the blood of Christ. He is the Ark of the Covenant. He is making us into a living temple, and He is our priests, and we are the priesthood. All these Old Testament laws that have been abolished are not, but they are fulfilled in Christ. And we need to see them and know them so we can see and know Jesus. If we divorce ourselves from them, we will not know the fullness of Jesus. might even be called least in the kingdom of God. So all these Old Testament things, laws, help us to see the majesty, humility, glory, righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will never diminish them, even if we aren't practicing them, because Christ is our fulfillment. Now, in verse 19, in the Greek, there's a play on words. Smallest commandment, smallest in the kingdom. It's more pronounced in the Greek, I should say. Interesting that you can be a part of the kingdom of God, even if you're careless with the commands of Scripture. I think that's a testimony to His grace. But what faithful disciple, someone who loves God with all their heart, Mind, soul, and strength. What disciple wants to hear from God that you are the least? Don't you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Not so that others will say, oh, that one's great. But because God will see the great life you have given to him. And he will rejoice in the precious gift of your life offered to him. Don't you want to please God with your life? That's what it is to be great in the kingdom of God. So Jesus' implication, uh, the exhortation is clear, strive, strive to be great in the kingdom of God. Want that, live for it, work for it. You want a practical way to be great in the kingdom of God? Heed the commission of Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the commandments, that I have com- or all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See teaching and commandments in there? Go everywhere, making disciples, teaching everything Christ has commanded. So, you who want to be great in the kingdom of God, do you you make an effort to make disciples? Have you taught them to obey Jesus? Do you not relax this command and leave it for others? And Jesus says in verse 24, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think everything Jesus has been saying so far has been getting the, the heads of the scribes and the Pharisees to nod. Like, yeah, not, a, not an iota, not a dot, Jesus. Tell them. Maybe except for that bit about fulfillment. And then Jesus drops this bomb on them, effectively saying, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is not enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying to the crowd that's there listening, he's saying to his disciples to whom he's speaking, see these scribes and Pharisees? They don't know how to go to heaven. They're not going to heaven unless they find a righteousness that's even greater. You can just picture the hot flash of anger on their faces. It's no wonder that eventually they, very soon they're going to want to kill him. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the most diligent law followers in all Israel, and you could even say in all the world, their aim was to literally follow every dot, every iota of every law, even down to the point where they're willing to take their spices out of their cabinet and you know break apart these microscopic amounts and then tithe them to the temple—utter uh, lunacy—in trying to fulfill the requirements of the law. Meticulous rule followers, but they they were not able to see the more important matters. For instance, they they knew how to obey every ceremonial cleansing law, and they did, but they had no idea how to be clean before God. Their souls were filthy, like whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside with all these washings, but their heart, like dead men's bones. Jesus will say those things to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. So the Pharisaic way was the wrong way. Even still, as Jesus spoke these words from the mount, the thoughts of the crowd must have been screaming, who in the world is righteous enough then? Like, what you're talking about, Jesus, is impossible. How then can I enter the kingdom of heaven? But Jesus is... He's not saying that the way to enter the kingdom of heaven is to beat the Pharisees at their own game. You can't. But we live in a new age now. We live in the age of fulfillment because Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And there is now a righteousness that does not come from rule following. It does not come from law adherence or trying to obey your way into righteousness. There's a righteousness that does not come from that. A greater righteousness. And it is a righteousness You don't work for, you don't earn, but it is freely and graciously given. Jesus already told us how to find this righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the laws of the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So, how do you get this righteousness? You recognize you're starving for it. Like your soul is desperate for this righteousness. And what you starve for, only God can give. You you have to come to him with this burning hunger for righteousness. And then he promises, if you do that, you shall be satisfied. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that's the key to the righteousness that opens heaven's doors. Jesus flesh. As we have seen, as I repeated, the law exposes our wickedness. It shows us that no amount of good works that we can try to do will be enough for us to climb out of the abyss of our unrighteousness. And so instead of, of trying to earn God's favor, all we end up earning for ourselves is God's condemnation. Again and again, vain attempts that only prove we are unrighteous. But Christ's righteousness is enough. And His righteousness has brought Him right beside The the Heavenly Father, to the right hand of the Father, beloved, most precious, the only, God's one and only Son. So, metaphorically speaking, our flesh was putrefying in unrighteousness, bound for the fire, but in place of ours, this most beloved Son offered his righteous flesh that we may be spared the fire. So, brothers and sisters, believe it, by faith feast upon this bread from heaven, this flesh of Christ, because he gives you his perfection, he gives you his life by faith. His righteousness is now your righteousness, a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Eat this bread and be satisfied. Paul writes in Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, you want righteousness, don't go to the law, you go to Christ now. You eat from Him and you are satisfied and you are made righteous. You do not live by the law of demands and rules, you live by a law of grace and love, and that is the law of the kingdom of God. The law of grace and love. Newly, we are new creations in Christ, newly created to be righteous. Now the lens of the law will never pass over you and say unrighteous. No, the lens of the law passes over you and God sees you and he sees his son and he says righteous, justified, beloved, precious, my son, my daughter. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from his love. So he's done this for us. He's done this amazing work for us. What must we now do? Our expression of that righteousness graciously given by God looks like the law. Because isn't it our longing, our joy now, to, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love God, who did not spare his own son? And because of God's great love for which He loved us, how can I not then love my neighbor? Of course, loving God and loving others are the two greatest commandments of the law, the, the two on which all of the law hinge. You know, and there are many other ways that our righteousness in Christ is manifested in such a way that it looks like the law. And in fact, the rest of chapter 5 is an oath to a new place or to a deeper place. And we will see that conclude with the words which sound very similar to a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes of Pharisees. Right in verse 48 of chapter 5, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the perfection that's demanded and that's the perfection only found in Jesus Christ by the law of love and grace. Okay, so those three questions I set out to answer in the beginning. I don't know if they're clear, but I'm going to try to say them again. I'm going to try to answer them now concisely. So in what way did Christ fulfill the Mosaic law? Christ is the embodiment of the law. He is the embodiment of righteousness. The law merely exposes the perfection of Jesus' righteousness. Thus, the law is forever pointing towards righteousness in Christ and is eternally significant. What is the significance of the law for us today? The law helps us to see our desperate need for Jesus' righteousness. And once we receive that righteousness by faith, then the law helps us to understand how to express our righteousness. Righteousness. And third, what is the type of righteousness needed to enter the kingdom of heaven? Only the perfect righteousness of Christ, freely given in love and in grace, given to sinners, only received by faith. So receive by faith and live according to the law of love and grace. That's how we enter the kingdom of heaven, receive by faith the grace of Christ. In just a few minutes, we're going to see these truths put on display for us. In the mini-drama of baptism, where all of these realities come colliding into one single symbol of baptism, three women are going to declare that they live no longer by a law of demands, of earning, of requirement, of failing. No, they live now by a law of love and grace that they have received the righteousness of Christ, and now it is their whole heart's desire to worship and obey him. That's what we will see symbolized in baptism. Won't you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your great love, your incredible grace that you give to us sinners these your own righteousness that we wholly, completely do not deserve, but in your great love you freely give. Father, who did not spare his own son, we love you. Help us to love you. I pray that as we see these women baptized in the next few moments, that our hearts would be moved. We'd be brought back to that moment, each one of us, where we made that same profession. And if we haven't yet, how would it make us want to so deeply? We thank you again for your gifts, for your grace, for your righteousness. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.